being able to just give somebody money and I get all the metrics that I care about in a really easy to digest manner. And then they're also pushing features out and doing all these things where it's like, I don't have to worry about that. That was kind of the big switch flip for me where it's like, at a certain point, you need to concentrate on the highest value activity. And it wasn't rolling my own data studio, figuring out why Supermetrics broke, like all these things like that. I was like, dude, I'll just give Triple Well money and it'll be fine. What is up, Modern Commerce listeners? I want to show you an amazing app we've been using called Triple Whale. You can check it out. Try triplewhale.com. It has all of the business health metrics and growth metrics you could possibly need all in one place, right? So everybody can get on the same page. This has revolutionized our ability to help grow brands and collaborate with brands. Everyone can get on the same page on the most important metrics. So if you're a media buyer, you can come into this and you can just use this little pin icon right here. And you can pin to the top the most important stuff to you. So if I'm a media buyer, I might have ROAS, I might, I might have ad spend, I might have new customer ROAS, right? But if I'm an owner, maybe those things aren't as important to me. Maybe I just want, you know, net profit, show me the net profit, show me the sales, right? Show me the number of orders. Um, so everyone on the team can get in line, get, you know, on the same page of what the most important growth metrics are, because it's different for every brand. Um, so grab Triple Whale at trytriplewhale.com. Use it. I promise you it will make your growth path far more clear. And uh, enjoy this episode of Modern Commerce. Hey, Modern Commerce. Welcome back. We're at it again. John and I here with a special guest. Uh, I'll let John go ahead and, and pick his brain for the most part today. They've already had a great conversation on his podcast. They'll get to that in just a little bit. But we have Raba Rayhill with us today. John, yeah. go ahead and take it away for me. Yes, I and we'll for sure link, kind of give you a suggestion uh, to the Triple Whale podcast. What is it? Sorry, you have the name. It's the name of it, right? What's the name of it? You're not your ROAS. You're not your ROAS, which is a great name. And I'm <laughs> so upset that i forgot it you can't be messing up another man's podcast i know man, we should just restart this at this what's this one called commerce <laughs> modern commerce, modern those guys podcast yeah uh no yeah so you're not your as we will link to it in the show notes we'll link uh probably casey i don't know it's up to casey but we'll link to it you and you should for sure check it out uh rob get some great guests but rob so excited to have you on um, and I will let you introduce yourself, maybe uh, like give, but, but this is like a fun way to start, like tell, like start with like, just something like weird about you or like that people like not your professional, like, oh yeah, I started here and then I did those and that's yeah, how like, yeah, yeah. it does it. Right. Like just tell us like something freaking weird about you. Um, well, actually this is something we connect on in terms of running, um, in a previous life, I was actually the, uh, freshman of the year in my conference for cross country. So I used to be a, a, a lot skinnier and a lot faster than I am now. In, col in college, you were the freshman of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the conference, in our, in our conference. Yeah, conference. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was, a, it was a, I went from the pinnacle and then it was all downhill from there. Started, <laughs> popped my freshman year. And, then, and it was, <laughs> is it run, as you know, John, running is a, it's a challenging sport, especially if you're, well, you kind of went semi-pro, so that's cool. But uh, I did not go pro and I ended up quitting because it was um, so much work in university as well. And I wasn't good enough to, to make money from it. And so, um, but yeah, that's kind of a little fun fact for me. I used to be a, a very, very proficient, uh, mid distance to distance runner. Yeah. Yeah. And I also was also many pounds ago. Uh, but that's like a random one that maybe some of the people who watch our show don't know, but cool. That's it. That's your sponsored as well. Don't, don't. Yeah, Don't sandbag oh, okay. yourself. Sketcher sponsored. I never got sponsored. Right. Yeah, I signed that. I signed that Sketchers deal. 
for the record, I also ran cross country, but I was never skinny, nor was I any good at it. So Casey was all right. He was all right for a casual runner. I'm more of a like short burst, like quickness kind of guy. Not so much that like endurance athlete. I'm I mean, going to let you guys run that race. I'll run like a 30 second version and then go get a hot dog or something. Yeah. I was going to say, you go to the races for the beers afterwards, right? That's it. What was it? Did you see the, 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 did you see the interview in the pro bowl with the punter who was like, yeah, I got uh what did he say? He's like, I, I, I took two snaps, got two halftime hot dogs. Favorite stat line I've ever had. <laughs> That's my that kind was, of stat line. That was Casey as a distance runner. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Cross country, co-ed sport, and there was a reason Casey participated. <laughs> Didn't we hurt, did travel with the, we did travel with the girls. It was nice. Yeah. So uh, okay, now let's get into like, all right, let's, let's talk about things people are here to listen about. We could do a whole podcast about running, and nobody would listen because um, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> really cares about it uh sorry if you're still sorry sorry to all my friends who are still still running but no judgment no judgment they know they know everybody knows uh so yeah tell tell me your background of like kind of your marketer's journey you know you don't have to start at like day one i was born but like maybe when you kind of came on this path as as a marketer as a e-com person yeah definitely yeah so basically the elevator pitch for me was um so I told I ran for two years at school. Uh, there's called IUPUI, so it's Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, right in the middle of Indianapolis. Um, I was an electrical engineering major. I hated it. I was doing really high level calculus. I was around people that were incredibly introverted, um, and it just wasn't my jam. I transferred down to the flagship campus of Indiana, um, Bloomington, go Hoosiers. Um, and there I studied economics. I actually wanted to be an investment banker at one point in time. And then I realized I didn't want to be an investment banker after talking to people that had went down that path. Um, you basically scuttle your 20s, but you're really rich. Um, so didn't want to do that. Got really heavily into tech. Um, I started building websites, AWS, iPhone apps, just super, super nerdy stuff. Um, but then I had the epiphany. I really actually wanted to start uh, earning money and making money. And from that, I realized that making somebody a cash register is not as efficacious as actually making them money. So when I started that, I started marketing and I realized, oh, when I can make people money versus actually build them a cash register, they're going to pay me a lot more. So that was kind of my first epiphany into switching from being a builder to more of a marketer. Got really into it. Uh, cut my teeth. A really good friend of mine, she was a yoga influencer on Instagram at the time. So we did, I was into photography as well. So I, uh, we did eBooks, shot a bunch of eBooks for her and then a bunch of ads made real, not real money, but at the time, like I was like, wow, this is, this is money. This is awesome, especially compared to when I was getting paid $500,000 to build somebody's WordPress site. So that was awesome. And then from that, went into uh, luxury real estate, did some paid media there. From uh, luxury real estate, I did moved up to Whole Foods. Um, so I did all the paid media for the recruitment vertical over at Whole Foods. Um, from that, I went to Agency Life. So I went over to an agency in excuse me, uh, New York called Flatiron, spent tons of money, uh, VC-backed, uh, companies got to work with Oprah, a bunch of big names, um, spent a bananas amount of money. And this really cut my teeth. I came from e-com and this was actually all app installs. So it was really cool to have that exposure because it's same, same, but different. There was just a lot of really unique things. The funnel is just totally different. Um, like you, you just start to learn getting almost like an app install is kind of the equivalent of an add to cart. And then, um, I had to get really sophisticated in reporting because there are seven day trials. So you get into cohorting and it just gets pretty crazy. 
Um, but it was really cool and it was awesome. Um, one of the things that was unique though in the app install world, uh, especially when you're in kind of VC backed companies, it's, it's a bit of growth at all costs. And so you just see some, we, we would call it jokingly and no disrespect to the West coast, but we'd call it LA math or LA math where like you're acquiring people like five, 600 bucks. And like the LTV was like a hundred or $200. So it was just like at a certain point, like selling $20 bills for $10 just doesn't work. But, um, and so from that, I went and started my own agency, um, and then ran my own agency for a few years. And then from that, uh, hooked up with AJ and Max, and now I'm the CMO over at triple. Nice. Uh, so you hit on something there that I think is, is so interesting in the, the, world of entrepreneurship and we primarily focus on e-commerce on the show uh but i mean it's it, there's not that many it, like if you're an entrepreneur right if you're like there's not that many degrees of difference between like if you're gonna like run an e-com brand or start an e-com brand and you know launch an app or something like that um the main the, the main thing that i the, but there are degrees of difference between like that and like doing an agency Yes. for example right because because one's going to take uh an upfront cash flow an upfront cash investment um or or it's going to take if you're going to bootstrap i mean it's going to take an upfront cash investment still you can't do zero dollars but uh if you're going to bootstrap it takes being profitable immediately right yes. whereas an agency it oftentimes is bootstrapped right like it didn't really it doesn't really take an upfront cash flow um and, I, and, and a lot of i actually say that like a service business is, is like not a bad place to start as an entrepreneur as like a 100%. If, if that's what you if you if you that's what you feel like you are you're like i just you know i want to own my bit and, and it's actually a great place to start too if you're like not sure if you're an entrepreneur because it's like a service-based business uh the product is human resource right like people uh in their expertise and time and it's a great way to learn if you actually like being an entrepreneur, if you just like doing a thing, you know what I mean? Um, so, but, but like what you said, I'm kind of getting off track. What you said was like, you worked with some VC backed uh, brand companies that would do that LA math. And I would like, that's not uncommon. I've done that same thing where uh, you, you don't really understand it, right? And, and maybe you understand it a little bit more than I do, but like, I would never really understand how it'd be like, why are they still spending so much money when their acquisition cost is $500 and their average order value on this like, you know, keto keto drink, uh, keto supplement is like 30 bucks and they don't even have any data on their LTV. I mean, I, I kind of understand that. Like, look, we just have to acquire to get some data on the LTV, but like they've been in it for a year now and so they should have the data, right? And they don't have any data that shows them that people come back and buy again. Like, why are they doing this? And then they'll still be raising rounds of funding. And I'm like, I just, I don't get, I, I don't get this world, right? Like, I don't get how this company can exist and why investors are backing it. And maybe, you know, better than I do, but somebody explained it to me once uh, this way. He's like, look, angels, like, or VC people, like they're like, think of them. Like if they were at a casino in Vegas, yes. they would be just putting bets everywhere. Right. Like, let me put a small bet everywhere and win one jackpot and then I'll win. You know what I mean? Like, um, and so it creates a very interesting business culture. If you're actually a market, if you actually want profit and I've not, yes. I'm not saying it's bad or good or, or not, you know, like, I think some people are like bootstrapped all the way. And some people are like, yeah, we raised this founding. And, um, but I do think you have to decide, you know, I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? I, I kind of like, didn't really ask a question there. Uh, maybe I'm not. No. Good. No, no, no. I think it's actually really eloquently put. So ultimately, 
what would happen? So, and I love the idea how you shy away from good and bad because ultimately those are like emotional judgments. And like, unless you know the context of the business, like that's what everything is going to be based on. It's going to be based on the goal of the business. And a lot of times the business has some sort of exit strategy plan. So a lot of these apps that we were working with um, were either one, just trying to gain market share. And so the play there is like, we just want to make a land grab. And then once we're this big gorilla in the room, then nobody can touch us. And then we can kind of ratchet down our costs and expenses and then ride this wave of profitability. So that's one bet. The other bet is they're trying to exit, right? And so there is this kind of growth at all costs and the investors want to see this up into the right curve. And so they really don't care about that. The quote unquote profitability can come later, um, especially if the profitability is being um, ate up by costs that you can ratchet back. Right. Like it's not these huge fixed costs. These are variable costs. So it's like, okay, cool. Let's just cut acquisition costs in half. And now we're instantly profitable. So right. or there just is spending money. Yep. Precisely. Yep. And so there is some, some wisdom to that, but I think ultimately a lot of it rolled into what you talked about earlier and Peter Thiel is kind of famous for this where um, it's not necessarily small bets. I think I would actually uh, uh, use a different descriptor and call them outlier bets where if this does go, it's going to go. And so you have this portfolio strategy where you're just betting on all these people, almost in a way like a draft, right? And so like you're drafting all these people. And if one or two of these people hit, that's going to, the whole portfolio is fine because it's getting paid off by one of these, one or two of these outliers and the rest of the people are, don't care. It's similar to a Hollywood model where you, you might throw $5 million at 10 movies or something. And one of those movies hits and it pays off in spades, the whole portfolio times 10 X. I, I think Sequoia, or I can't remember the uh, 5 million. Isn't that much, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm just throwing, I'm just throwing random numbers out there, but uh, what's uh, for, what, Bill Gurley. I forget what the, his, his fund is, but the uh, Bill Gurley. And the, anyways, there's a big fund. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's Sequoia, but any their fund had been around forever. They invested in a ton of stuff and Uber basically made all of their money or the Uber returns, because they were very early into Uber, were bigger than all of the returns combined from the previous investments of all of that, of that uh, VC firm. And so that's kind of the strategy there is like, if you can just find one Uber, one Facebook, what have you. Um, and so that's where I think it was stemming from. But to your point, because I came from e-com, like, that's not really a path, a viable path for e-com. It's more so in some, some semblance of software or service business where, there's, there's either less marginal cost or the economics are a little more gracious as you scale. So, I mean, that's like, so I'm at Triple Whale. SaaS companies are notorious for this, where like SaaS companies are one of the best things to invest in because basically once you can find product market fit, all you need to do is hire a bunch of developers. And because there's no marginal cost, really. Like if I need to ship, if somebody else signs up for Triple Whale today, like it really doesn't cost us anything. Obviously there's server costs and there's some things here and there, but it's not the same as like, if I'm selling uh, protein powder or something like that, I have to have the cogs for the protein powder. I have to have the shipping and handling for the protein powder. There's all these marginal costs that go with every unit sold. Whereas um, another way to think about it is like atoms and bits. Like if you're in atoms, you have marginal costs. There's just no way around it. But when you're in bits, like you can just print another CD or like, for example, you, uh, like John, if you had a webinar on how to media buy or something like that. Every subsequent customer that buys that webinar doesn't cost you anything or it costs you like basically nothing. You could, for all intents and purposes, when you do the analysis, the marginal cost is going to be close enough to zero that it's pretty much negligible. Whereas if you're hosting a conference or something like that, there's going to be fixed costs. There's going to be marginal costs for every person that comes there. Yada, yada, yada. So 
um, I'm kind of in the weeds now, but ultimately it, I understood the models. It was just really interesting to see because I think there's also a certain point of it's really hard to get it's really hard to break the sunk cost fallacy where um, you can put good money behind bad. And that's really, that's not where you want to be, where it's like, you know, this thing is a, it's an absolute bum. Like it's terrible. You need to kill it, take it out behind the shed and like go on to your next thing. But then, you know, you see another five, 10 million just pour in and you're like, why, why? Like, what's the point? Oh, because we've already invested 20 million. You're like it. Another way to think about it. If you have Exactly. And so if you hadn't invested that $20 million, would you still put in that extra five to 10? No. So then what, why would you do that then? But again, it's hard to call your baby ugly. It's hard to say you made a mistake. It's you know these things, egos, egos, a mother effort. It's a, it's a tough one to get over. And, and like, so I think you see, especially when you're kind of that alpha world of like VC and stuff, very powerful people, a lot of uh, resources to throw around. Um, but so yeah, no judgment there, but it was definitely very odd to, again, you know, see these incredibly high CACs and then have the visibility in the business to be like, dude, even on your wildest dreams, you're never going to break even. And so it's like, that was kind of, I think the most eye-opening experience. When you brought, you brought up Uber and I were kind of, it was, this is weird. We're like kind of getting off e-commerce a little bit, but like you brought up Uber, Uber kind of famously released a quarterly earnings report, uh, I think a couple of years ago now where they stated, we don't think we'll ever be profitable. We don't think we'll ever be profitable. We, we do with Uber. Biggest, probably, I would say the biggest marketplace business in the world. Uh, I would definitely say it's at least top five-ish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's big. Well, it says it will never be profitable, yeah. right? Like, so that, I mean, it, it, what you have to understand if you go into this world, and, and maybe you've seen this, I've, I'm not like, to me, I'm like, doesn't that just mean somebody's going to get caught holding the bag? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. You know, <laughs> yes. that's what I thought, but like, maybe not. <laughs> it's so, sorry to cut you off, but to your point, another kind of really good example is we were. And so Uber got out, everybody in Uber got paid, dude. Everybody got like three comma club paid. Like you're, they're out. Once you go public, you can push it on to retail. You can push it on to public investors. You can push it on the people buying pensions. You can do all this stuff on public markets that you can't when you're a private company um, for a whole myriad of reasons. Um, and so WeWork was in that exact same position where WeWork was just this incredible. I mean, think of this, dude. Adam Newman literally burnt eight billion dollars and walked away with a billion dollars can you imagine somebody that smart like i gave you you wasted almost eight billion dollars and somehow you get compensated a billion for wasting eight billion dollars like that still just like absolutely blows my mind but if they would have got out and honestly they might might have have gotten out if it wasn't for covid and so it's just like this crazy like so ultimately the too long didn't read there is um, if you can't make it in uh, the exit to the IPO, um, all that funny math catches up with you. Oh, yeah. You know, you, people get caught holding the bag all the time. In that exactly. Moment. That's the thing 100%. you have to understand if you're going in and maybe to kind of bring this back to e-com or, or to who we talk to, which is probably marketers, uh, e-com operators, e-com marketers, that kind of thing. Uh, it, it, you got to understand what you are. So if you're, if you're a company that raises and you're in a position where it's like, we're never going to be profitable. And I've worked with some, I've worked with some like um, kind of Silicon Valley, like e-commerce companies, if you will. Um, so they're from that like Silicon Valley VC venture backed world, uh, but they're launching physical product brands. Uh, and 
yeah, if they're, if they're never going to turn the corner to profitability, if you're like, look, in your wildest dreams, this $500 CAC will never work out for you, right? Or this $100 CAC or whatever it is. In your wildest dreams, this will never work out for you. Um, that's what you have to understand is that this whole venture-backed world is, it runs on like, it runs on like, how do I be the one who holds the bag at the right time and passes the bag at the right time? 100%. And how do I have the right amount of ego and not and, and kind of like read other people's over like too much ego right like that's kind of how this whole world runs so if you work there if you're a marketer there if that's what you're doing with your brand that's just like kind of how you have to understand it and it's a little different now because it's not so centralized to one geographical area anymore yes. i would say that's how the silicon valley market like really runs you know really runs yep. and um right like you're talking about uber you're talking about we work um that's how the silicon valley market re really runs but now there's all these pe firms you know yeah. all over the all over and, and some of them are smarter some of them know you know they're they're trying to acquire like you know positive ebitda businesses and and stuff like that so uh yeah like it, and I shouldn't say smarter because that implies that like one isn't smart. Um, they're making different kinds of bets. They're making yes. probably higher dollar, right? Like they're, they're, they're investing a lot of money. It's like a real estate investment, right? Like you buy a piece of real estate to use as a rental and it's just, you know, it's going to cash flow. It is going to cash flow. It's real estate. It's going to cash flow, but it's going to take a long time to, to return your investment. Um, so there's one capital making, intensive as well. Right, and so that's one the making, thing. You have to have money. Right. You got to have money. So there's ones making bets like that. And then there's ones making bets on, you know, like outlier companies that, you know, there's no, there's no proof here, but it's like, but if it goes, it'll really go. Like you said. Uh, so you you just got to know where you are as a marketer, as a, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, if you get into that raising world at all, or VC world at all, I've, I've stayed out. I've, you know, I've stayed in the bootstrapped space and it, other than, other than, you know, working as a, as a contractor, you know, on yeah, yeah. paid on paid media for some of these companies. And even then, I would say that I probably didn't understand it well enough to like really get into it. And I just I didn't like it. You know what I mean? I'm like, I don't like running 500. Like I don't feel like I get to say I do anything that that's is that cool, you know? Yeah. Um yeah. And just to put a bow on that, when I think of like raising money or capital, <clears throat> I would take a look at your business and put it through two lenses. Am I capital constrained or am I market constrained? Because if you're capital constrained, maybe you should raise money. Like if you just need to hire more people or if you just need to buy more ads or if you just need more money to actually grow the business, that's a capital constraint. You, you actually Go raise money. Fire, right? Go, like, yes, yeah, so you have product you know. market fit. You, yeah, your fuel fire thing. I, I use that yeah. all the time, by the way. You guys got to watch the episode. It's fantastic. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's, that's exactly it. So you're capital constrained, right? Now, if you're market constrained and your, your product sucks or you haven't found product market fit or whatever, no amount of capital is going to help that. Yeah, and money so you isn't, can buy more ads. It's not a capital constraint. It's a market constraint. So money isn't going to fix your CAC problems. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're just, and so that's kind of how I think of raising money is in that dichotomy of am I capital constrained with my growth or my market constraint? Because if I'm market constrained, all you're going to do is get more people's money and you're going to get people mad at you. And then quite frankly, you might get activist investors. You might like... At the end of the day, you're going to lose some control of your company because you are giving up equity um, right. for that money. Like that money just doesn't come for free. And so you're going to give up a portion of your company. And then at a certain point, you might dilute your shares because you might give out more shares because you need to raise again. And so there can be this really negative flywheel effect. So again, if you don't need the money, don't take it. And I think kind of what you're uh, really hitting on very uh, prescient, John, is that um, no, start with the end in mind. Like if your end is to exit and go crazy, 
go get capital. Cause guess what? The, that's the best part of entrepreneurship. Like if you F up and fail, dude, it's not your money. Like your reputation takes a hit. That sucks. But there's a lot of like Adam Newman is coming back on the scene. And like, we're just talking, this guy burnt seven bills, seven <laughs> billy. And you know what I mean? Seven billion are trying to, yeah. And people are still trying to give this guy money. And so I, I think there's a certain aspect of knowing, start with the end in mind, and then that'll really um, alleviate a lot of these kind of knock-on effects. But yeah, you can get into some really, you know, economically precarious situations if you, if you don't, and then you start to, um, you know, take money and then that money doesn't do anything because like when you take money, there's literally a pre and post. So I'm going to give John a million dollars. I say, John's, John's company is worth $5 million. When I give him this $20 million, it's going to be worth 60 million instantly. Once I give him that $20 million, that's kind of how pretty much raises work. And so if you don't hit those goals, it gets into just, again, really stressful, not, you know, fun situations. If you are taking money as some signals that I noticed, if you are taking money because you're out of money to pay yourself and your team's salaries, the first thing you need to ask yourself is why are you out of money to pay yourself and your team's salaries before you're taking more money? Um, and, and yeah, that, I mean, that I saw all the time. It's like, basically they just go do more raises so that they can keep a job, right? That's their job is to raise so that they can continue to have a job. Um, and that's, yeah, it's just, maybe it's for some people, for me, it's like having to work two sides of the business of trying to actually grow this business and also trying to like raise for it all the time. I don't love it. You know, it's not, it's not for me. And I, and it, it really creates strange situations as a marketer sometimes where it's like you said, like, we know we can just turn off ads and we'll be profitable all of a sudden. And then you're sitting there like, uh, like, what do I do then? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, okay. So I want to switch gears a little bit. This, this took a little bit of detour from the normal, uh, but I, I like that, you know, like we cover some different stuff on Mars. Well, I, I got to get a word in here, John. Go ahead, Casey. You, you, I, I got to jump in here real quick. Cause yeah. first of all, I got to say, this is super interesting, Raba, hearing more about your, your background, because this is kind of similar to John. It's, it's in no way similar to mine. So hearing how different people kind of arrive to like more of a similar like endpoint or kind of where we all kind of operate a little bit more now. Uh, it's very fascinating because it kind of shapes our perspective and our view about said thing. Right. Um, and I, I noticed, cause this is something we do. I mean, 10 times per episode, at least John and I both think in analogies and metaphors. And I noticed you already alluded to one of John's about the, the gas and the fire. He says that all the time. I've taken that. That's a, that's a Johnism for sure. I don't know if Johnism. I, I don't know if it's an, an OG, like an OJ, I guess, an original Johnism, but, uh, but it's a great one. Um, so I have a question for you. I know that you're a sports fan, and we've had an episode where we've gone over specifically sports metaphors. Um, if you need me to stall for time for you to think of one, I think you can see where my, my question is going. Do you have a sports metaphor that you like specifically for e-commerce or, or even business, kind of the business world in general? Oh, that's a good question. So I would say the sports metaphor would be um, for e-commerce that everybody has to be, ev people don't have specific jobs. Everybody's function should be to win. And so when you have a point guard, they might say, oh, my, for basketball, like I'm running the one, so I need to run the offense or whatever. Or if you're in a soccer, you might say the goalie's job is to stop the ball from going in the net. At the end of the day, those are more so tactics, but everybody has to be aligned on the mission of winning. Like nobody wants to, especially at high performing, you don't want to lose. And so everybody has to be aligned with that mission of 
winning the championship, winning the title, winning the district, winning that. And so I think that would be my analogy of sports would be when you look at all these great teams, especially like the OG UCLA's or uh, even the OG Cowboys or the Niners, oh boy, Walsh, right? Like mazillion titles. Like every time you talk to those people, every single one of those players knew exactly what the mission was, knew exactly what the goal was. And there wasn't um, like, so as a CMO, I have directs now or direct reports. And it's not about working for me. It's about working toward the mission of hitting our goals. It's not about me being the boss. It's about me working in tandem with them and everybody's trying to win the game. And I, I think that would be the analogy that I would use where you, you really need to make sure that everybody's aligned with the mission and the goal. And obviously, so I'm an economist, so like divisions of labor is always top of mind. But at the end of the day, everybody needs to be aligned with winning and what that goal is. And I, I think that's ubiquitous across great companies as well as great sports teams. Yeah. I mean, I'm a basketball guy and uh, I, I remember like a travel team I was playing on when I was younger, I played a couple years of like AAU ball and it, like yeah. it, 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 I had a coach and like, look, the way that you win games in basketball is you understand whose role is what, right? And that's important. So then that, that's not what you're saying. I'm not, not hearing what you're not saying in that, like, it's not about roles. Like we say this all the time, like, you know, like role player, like he's a role player. He's like a main primary score. He's a franchise player, right? Like roles actually are super important in understanding the roles. But I, I remember this game that we were having where uh, we kept getting killed in transition. Like they were kind of, they were like a very good transition team and they kind of kept taking us apart in transition. And we like our, we called a timeout <clears throat> and, and like our coach was kind of getting honest about our transition defense. And one of the players goes, I got number five, right? Like that's what he said. And the coach was like, sit down, right? Like it's not about what your job is. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about your assignment. And, and he might've meant it in a way like, okay, everybody just say who you have. I have number five, right? He just didn't say it right. right? But like, uh, he, he's, what he was kind of focused on is he's like, I'm doing my job. Like we're getting killed in transition. I got number five. Who's got number 30. He's freaking scored 10 times in a row on us. Right. And coach and the coach was like, it doesn't matter who your defensive assignment is. Stop them from scoring in transition is your job. Right. Like, yep. The, when the roles break down, you have to be willing to be flexible and break down yep. with now, you know, when we're running the way that we're supposed to be running, we play our roles. Absolutely. Right. But you have to be willing to like flex, go away from your role, you know, switch. You got to be able to switch. Yep. You know, Rob, I loved your, your shout out to the 49ers, Bill Walsh. Um, honestly, when you guys were talking about that VC world, that LA math, uh, my natural brain went to like, you know, I'm so used to working with like bootstrapped e-com brands that I'm thinking like the West Coast offense, like good round game. You need a solid foundation on the good run game, little short passes, maybe a play action deep every once in a while, but you, you kind of play it safe. You kind of, you kind of eat what you kill, those kinds of things. Uh, and then when I hear you guys talking about that world, all I can think of is like the new school, like Andy Reid, like Kansas City, Patrick yeah. Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, let it fly, vertical offense, like ever, like, okay, average passing play last year was 30 yards or whatever, something crazy already. But this year we can do 32. Like, wh what? That's insane. No, I love that. And honestly, to build off of that analogy even more, I would say that um, that's also a function of the environment. And so, like, I, I, again, I'm not into sporty ball as much as I used to be, but, like, back in the NFL days when I used to watch it, dude, you didn't go over the middle. 
You know why? Because you'd get cracked, and the receiver would get hit once. Like, dude, I'm not running that route again. That linebacker just lit me up. And now if you touch people in the wrong way or blah, blah, blah. And again, it's no judgment on the game. It's just I grew up different. Kind of, I know you're in the NBA, John. It's very similar, right? Like the OG John Stockner. Remember the Knicks, Charles Oakley? Like you come in the paint, son, you're getting hit. Like it wasn't, it wasn't it's what it is now. Where you, you, yeah. you look at LeBron and all it's a, it's a technical or something. It's a flagrant foul if you touch his pinky kind of stuff where it's like, and so, again, no judgment on that because it's, it's the NBA is a business. The NFL is a business. Well, NFL is a nonprofit, but we won't get into that. Anyways, but the, uh, the too long didn't read is I think what happened there is that you start to transition um, to make your abilities uh, be more productive in the environment that you're in. And I think the, those environments change. And that's exactly how business works, where, you know, whether it's the funding environment where you can't raise money, so you need to be more fiscally responsible or I mean, in the 2000s, man, it was cocaine and champagne. Like, you just shook a cup and people would throw $50 million in. Like, oh, you need money? Yeah, well, you'll raise, you'll raise. And then there's going to be there's cycles to this thing, right? And so now we're in a cycle where it's like, okay, uh, a lot of the stuff that shouldn't have raised money is dying. And there's, that's exactly what should happen. That's, that's the beauty of capitalism is like there's winners, there's losers. And so I, I think that is kind of also where – Andy Reid and those kind of high flying offenses. I mean, Kurt Warner, best show on turf, that kind of stuff where it's like you, you use what you have first off, but it's also you need to understand the environment you're in um, to extend that sports analogy. And so you need to understand where, where you can really, because there's a lot of times like, again, those over the middle passes are pretty much impossible to cover. And now there's really zero downside to them because nobody's getting hit. And then guess what? If you do get hit, as long as your guy doesn't get hurt, you get 15 yards and a first down. And so the, the, the incentives just, I, yeah. I'm a big believer in incentives and I think incentives drive a lot of behavior. Yeah, that, that's a great one. It, fans, fans love to see a 50 yard pass. Yeah, another, another great point you had there. It's uh, another sports metaphor. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. There is no like remaining the same totally uh, because if you're not getting better, the rest of the league is just like in, in anything business really. So great yeah. points. John, sorry to hijack it there. I had to, oh, had to insert that little bit because I, I knew I wanted to get it that in, but uh, I'll let you get back to some of your more regularly scheduled uh, yes. questions here. Let's shift gears here a little bit. Like I, I kind of have like two things I want to hit here is I, I want to I hit on uh, transitioning from, and, and maybe you can give me some years here so I can like get a, like when you were doing your own agency, you're yeah. primarily working with e-com brands. Yeah. Yeah, about yeah. 1 million to 10 million is kind of was my one sweet spot. 1 to 10 million. Yeah. And you transitioned from there into Triple Whale, correct? Yes. Yes. So this is very interesting because, and, and I guess you had a little bit of a SaaS background, but like a, a VC, uh, uh, investment back SaaS background, which is different, <laughs> right? And I, I don't know if Triple Whale does races, but like uh, an investment back SaaS background where it's like all about, hey, who are we going to leave holding the bag with this thing? Um, as opposed to what Triple Whale is, which is, you know, something that's actually like a potentially a very solvent company, right? Like, exactly. Uh, yep. And, and uh, so, I want to talk to you about your shift from e-com into SaaS because we're e-com people here. This is a, a show about e-com. And I mean, not just as a media buyer, like as a generally a marketer, why did you take that shift? Where, why did you do that shift? Why did you, like, do you, how, how are you feeling? What are the, what are the benefits and drawbacks, you know, like yeah. of going SaaS, you know, yeah, Get, definitely. of getting sassy, getting sassy. So uh, just higher level, one of the biggest shifts, not even just the business model, but was the um, construction of my time. So going from uh, IC, which is kind of dirty corporate language for individual contributor um, to an executive, 
it's just a massive shift in terms of value vectors, right? Like what drives value for a, a really top level executive is not going to be what drives value for a top level IC. And so that was a big shift for me. And in specific, I used to kind of crap on, um, you know, quote unquote executives, because I came up again in that kind of coding technical world. And I had this dogma of you're not technically proficient, like you're a scrub. Like that, that's how I gave you value. That's how I ranked you in my hierarchy. Like, can you code? Are you proficient in what you're doing? Yada, yada, yada. Like, are you technical? I'm starting to realize how wrong I was where there is so much to be said about people that can skill up a team, hire up a team, get a team rowing all in the same direction, all at the same time, understanding how to, you know, maneuver certain politics. Like, and so now I'm understanding why the executive compensations are kind of where they are because it's incredibly hard to find great executives and it's incredibly hard to be one, quite frankly. And so that's kind of the higher level, the SaaS kind of business model stuff. The e-com to SaaS is a little different because e-com is more so not necessarily like one night stands, but there is a certain aspect of the pitch can be much more truncated. And a lot of times there's not a lot of education needed or requisite knowledge to absorb the value so it's, like ath athletic greens yeah athletic greens it's right a physical like, thing that you do i want to be healthy put it in this drink be healthy look at these models or whatever like there's just way easier hooks where for example like triple well like we have cohorting if you don't know how to use cohorting that, that screen's pretty much useless to you and to be fair like cohorting is you know it's a higher level subject that it's very confusing and it's hard to get your head around and like once you do it you get it but until you get it, you don't. And if you don't, then you're not going to get value from the product. If you're not getting value from the product, you're not going to pay for the product. And so that to me is one of the reasons why when I came on, our biggest initiatives were community content and education where we didn't even, we just started paid media like two weeks ago and it's still like paltry levels. We're spending like five, 600 bucks a day. I mean, pretty much negligible. Um, and so that to me was the biggest distinguished where, or the, the biggest bifurcation between the two of e-com slash DTC to SaaS is that there's a huge education component and there's also a different economics. So there, there's kind of a three to one LTV to CAC is kind of what you hear thrown out there. And so you don't know what your churn is yet until you have, you know, a decent six to a six months to a year of lifetime to understand how people are actually going to churn through their product. But once you do get that, you can get into some, uh, again, LA math, but in a good way where you're essentially buying forward, right? So for example, like if you know the LTV on somebody that buys a $500 product and they're going to stay with you for a year, that's six grand, right? And so if you're going to keep that kind of six or three to one ratio, you can spend up to two grand to acquire that person and you're still going to net out just fine. And so there's some just nuances there, but for me, it's, the pitches can be more succinct and more direct in e-com and DTC, whereas SaaS is really an education play. And it's also a relationship that you're building. Not to say like e-commerce isn't a relationship, but again, you're getting into contractual, you know, um, purchases where you're, you're, you're entering into a contract with somebody, a month to month contract versus DTC really you care about 60, 90 day LTV because you have no clue when these people are going to come back. You have no clue how, they, like, how do you measure churn in DTC, right? It's like, 
you don't. I mean, it's, it's very difficult because uh, what, what if somebody doesn't buy in six months, if somebody doesn't buy in 12 months, if somebody doesn't buy in 24 months, like what is the lifetime of that person? It, it gets very, very challenging, very, very fuzzy. Whereas when you have a subscription or a contractual business, it's very easy to calculate your churn where it's like, hey, we had 100 people today. We have 90 people yesterday. You know what I mean? Like the, it, it gets really easy to understand that where DTC is really, again, built off, in my opinion, that 60, 90 day LTV um, where you're, or even maybe a six month LTV if you're using cohorting just to, because you don't know what that lifetime is. And so it's really hard to calculate churn. If it's really hard to calculate churn, then what is the lifetime kind of thing? So that was for me the, the biggest distinguished in factors between the two is one, how you build the relationships and two, what drives value um, for the customers, especially um, in terms of acquisition. Yeah. And, and so something else come up for me uh, while you were talking too, because uh, you, the, another shift you made is you went from e-commerce direct to consumer, which I have my own opinion on this, but I'm going to use some, some classic marketing terms here which was a B2C, yep. right? Like it was a business to consumer like approach. Now you've also pushed over to SaaS, which you've gone to both going to SaaS from uh, e-commerce to SaaS and from business to consumer to business to business. Now, I actually have my opinion that might be a little contrarian here on this, but like, have you noticed major differences as a marketer uh, moving from B2C to B2B? 100%. And these actually were pre-hold, like I actually had these kind of assumptions and they're ultimately just verified. But um, so I guess kind of to use triple well as a lens, we ultimately have two cohorts. We have a store owner operator cohort, and then we have an agency cohort and the agency cohort is more akin to that B2B transaction. And the D or the store owner operator is more akin to that B2C transaction. And so when you get into those kind of, there's just, again, different value vectors. So B2C kind of people, they really care about product quality. They care about just all these, like the product has to be awesome. They want to be seen as the cool kids. Like there's all these kind of unique attributes, whereas B2B support is huge. Like if I'm going to give you all this money and this thing breaks, I need a phone number to call or I need somebody to email. Like that is absolutely, especially if it's a, you know, a client facing thing where I'm not on the hook for the support. Um, and so again, there's just different value vectors. And so there's a, a nice framework called jobs to be done that I subscribe to that you really want to identify the jobs to be done that the people are hiring your product for. And they're just hiring your product for different reasons. Like the store owner operator just wants to get profitable. Whereas the agency, agency wants to increase billings. It wants to increase retention. It wants to make sure that the money they're paying you is a return on investment. It wants to make sure they have zero exposure to support. They want to, or uh, like, they don't want to support it. They want to make sure that the SLA is in line with service level agreement. Like if something breaks, how often is it going to break? And is that within my threshold of okay? Um, and so there, there's just these different things. And so even though it's the same service, you pitch it to them in the different ways because they're going to have different anxieties. They're going to have different expectations. They're going to have different, again, value vectors that um, is going to drive that they're going to drive along that um, B2B and B2C don't necessarily do. But we have ultimately both cohorts that value different things, but they're ultimately ending at a subscription, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah. And in and, and, and like techno, very technical terms. Both cohorts would be B2B, right? Like they're Yes, correct. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Yes. Let me tell you my contrarian thought on this is that I don't, I, so I shouldn't say I don't think B2B and B2C are different. Um, but what I should say is I think to use, to steal a term from you, I think it's a bad mental model. Uh, oh, interesting. Say more. Because 
I think that the way, like we're like, oh, B2B and B2C are different. So when I'm talking to consumers, I need to like talk to a person. And when I'm talking to businesses, I need to like say what's important to the business. It's, it's H to H either way, right? Like it's human to human either way, right? So you have to know who you're talking to either way. Who You, you got to break it down to decision makers. If, it, if you're B2B, you got to break it down to like who within the business is actually making this decision, whose attention do I need to get, who do I need to be talking to um, and stuff like that. So it's it, it, either way, it's value props and understanding what's important to them um, and like getting their attention either way. So that's why I think it's a bad mental model because I think so many B2B companies think we're B2B and then they just go like, like they'll use like inside language in their marketing. And I'm like, stop that. Like, don't do that. You know, like you're still talking to people. You still need to get people's attention um, either way. Or they'll be like, you know, Facebook isn't really uh, right for B2B because it's it's not a business platform. Like, but all the humans are on it, right? Or all the Instagram or t- whatever, TikTok. Like, but the humans are still there. The humans that make the decision to buy your product uh, are still there. So that's why I think it's like not the best mental model. I will acknowledge that it is different though. And and the main difference that you didn't say that I will say is that in the B2B world, it actually is a little bit easier to uh, create working capital uh, from customers because you do not need as, in many cases, you do not need to sell as many things or as many times. So like if you're going business to business to consumer and you're selling like, you know, a product to the masses, it's pretty hard to scale any other way than like purely advertising and getting them to a place to buy the product. Um, It's hard to grow any other way than that. Because you can actually grow a B2B business pretty large on kind of like business development, conferences, like handshake interactions, handshake marketing, you might say. You know, you might not even need to go to paid media to grow a B2B company like pretty, pretty large. Um, in a lot of, so it's like, you, you can, you can get a lot further. You just have to think about your marketing a little bit differently. Like, Hey, things like going to conferences, speaking, being on, like those are, those are marketing activities in the B2B world. Whereas in the B2C world, it's like, in order for this thing to even really get any legs, you need a massive amount of traffic. Right. And, uh, so I think that's the main difference, but I don't love the mental model that people use and say like, oh, you got to speak to them differently because they're a business. Like, I mean, you speak to them differently because it's a different product, you know, there's a different pain point in their life that it's solving, but like humans spend a whole lot of their time at work. So let's just kind of treat them like humans. I don't know. Thoughts? So I do love that. I don't, I would push back a little bit and say it's an absolutely different transaction because it's a longer sales cycle, like a hundred percent longer sales cycle. You're going to go through this maze of like gatekeepers and then finally getting to somebody that actually cuts the check. And then those are different pitches. Like the, the person that wants the, the, the person that you're going to pitch. So for example, like us, we, a lot of times we'll pitch the head of media buying, right. Or something like that. And then we'll actually have to talk. So they're like, okay, cool. This platform looks amazing. It's going to help our clients. Now I got to t- now you got to talk to the VP. Okay, the VP is like, hey, this looks great. What are the terms? Those terms are okay, but actually send me better terms. Okay, cool. Now the VP goes, okay, cool. CEO or a CFO, hey, we're going to enter into this contract. You're talking, you know, month to three months. Now you're killing a bigger animal. You know, for, sorry for the morbid references, but yeah, the, no, the, that's, the, right. the kill is bigger, and so it's definitely worth. Like the the juice is worth the squeeze. But it's just a totally different sales cycle, um, which means that you're going to have different people, which means that there's just a different headspace that you're in when you're selling to um, those people. The other thing that makes a bigger difference is B2B, it's not their money. Like when you're selling to a store owner operator, like 
almost always it's their money. And so again, they're going to have these different value vectors and different jobs to be done. So I agree that you don't need to talk to them differently, but you like, so we try and keep the same brand voice and all that, but at the same time, they're going to value different things. And we're going to accentuate those things that they value and try and alleviate their anxieties because they're not going to have the same anxieties as somebody that's running, uh, you know, 20 clients or 50 clients or something like that, where it's like, okay, well, if we're going to bring you in, we're going to build SOPs around you. And then like, how much is this thing going to marry me? Like, are we going to marry this thing? What's going on? There's just a longer term vision a lot of times with B2B transactions. And that hence usually the sales cycle is a lot longer. Um, so I, I take your points. I think you're, you're on the right track, but I do think that B2C and B2B, or maybe, maybe we're getting caught up in the nomenclature, but I do think you need to understand what the people you're pitching, what their jobs to be done are, what their anxieties are, and then try and alleviate those. Cause a lot of times it's not going to be the same. And quite frankly, you might even have different anxieties within that cohort where <laughs> some people might be like, Hey, economically, I'm just not here. Or, Hey, I am here, but I need to understand if you're going to have this on the roadmap or that on the roadmap, and then I can adopt you. Um, so I, I do take your point, but I think that there is something to be said of making different there's this phrase called horses for courses. And basically all that means is you should use the right horse for the right course. And so if you have a really fast horse, that's going to do really great on straightaways. Right. But if you have a really fast horse that can't turn, if there's any turns in that course, you don't want that horse. And so you're going to go get a more agile horse where it's top speed might be lower, but it's actually going to finish the course faster because it's more uh, tuned to what the needs of that course are. So I, I definitely take your point, but I think that there are, there are a little more nuances to uh, B2B transactions, but I will tell you where you're right is um, the marketing spends a lot different to your point of like sponsorships and there's reputation. And then, you know, aligning with the right people, understanding who the power brokers are in that space and understanding that kind of thing where store and arbors don't care about that. Like, can you make me profitable? How much does it cost? Okay, let's go. Like, mm -hmm. and so it's just a different um, consideration set, if you will. I, and I would say it's different customer avatars, right? Like the same thing in B2C, people buy your product for different use cases for different yes. reasons. Is that what exactly. you're about to say, Casey? No, I was going to say, I love these different like yeah. lenses we look at these totally different situations through and we try to like grab common threads and stuff through them actually i think that this episode will directly follow an episode we're doing that's loosely titled something like the value of a marketer and it's really interesting with all these different perspectives different situations like the value of any one individual is different given the the situation they're put in right and i loved your realization you said about essentially team building where you know you kind of looked at it kind of like in an arithmetic way like x person has this value stack that on top of this other person that's how much value we have uh, and then your realization that like it sounds like something that i've said that's like uh some people are kind of like more like multipliers as opposed to like that you know those glue people you know you kind of build that little bit of culture you get people stroking at the same time rowan you know um and that's that's hard to i mean i i like to think of myself as that kind of multiplication factor except you know it's the what degree are you are you 1.05 like you know <laughs> i like to think that even at the the littlest yeah. level that's the way i try to operate um yeah. but yeah that's that's just it's so fascinating one one quick one i got to interject john yeah Rob, what personality type are you? Are you familiar with MBTI? Yeah, I, I forget what I am, but I'm like the the extroverted leader that is like an ENTJ, I believe, if I remember correctly. <laughs> ah, one letter is away that, from me. Yeah. From you, yeah, yeah, very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, totally reads. I mean, I'm not I'm not some personality junkie, but it's just a fascinating, like quick little uh, insight into somebody's back because you do kind of rate. I, I think you probably are that kind of multiplication person as well. Um, you kind of you sound like a leader when you talk, man. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, though, it's definitely different. So like the in the developer world, they're kind of called 10x developers or 100x developers, where it's like you get this person and they just they can run. But man, I'll tell you, it has been a huge challenge to convert that from to an executive mindset where there's just like, it is just night and day what makes like a 10xer to an actual like an executive that becomes ultimately like this this multiplier of people versus this multiplier of work, if that makes any sense at all. And so that like an executive is really like, they're not going back to that analogy of proficiency. I I was uh, listening to, I can't remember the podcast, but I know you guys are familiar with soccer, but there's this kind of legend called Pele from uh, Brazil. He's just, yeah, icon. I mean, he's one of the, like considered one of the best soccer players ever. He wasn't even the captain of the Brazilian team. And what was crazy about that to me was, again, I came from that proficiency world and like the best player on the team is the captain. And the reasoning for the coach was he's the best player on the team, but he's not the best captain. And I don't want to burden this person with all of that stuff of having to deal with the team drama, with having to keep people in the locker room right, like blah, blah, blah. Like just let him go play and then find that captain that'll actually be kind of what i think you refer to john as like that glue person or somebody where you you really can make that cohesive team work together but they might not be the best player and so that that kind of going you are getting all the sports analogies out of me jeez people are going to think i'm just like a huge sporty head uh, but uh, so that would to me again was that epiphany where it's like oh wow i don't have to be the best person but if i can make sure my team is enabled to get to where we are and they know what the goal is everybody's aligned with the mission just get out of the way and again it sounds much easier than it is but that was a realization for me where you have to give up the reins you have to hire smarter people than you and just let them run and ultimately now what i'm doing with my direct reports is um ultimately like a calibration period where uh, ideally we get to a mind meld where we're thinking the exact same thing but i'm asking them okay before i give them an answer when they ask me a question it's like well what do you think i would say and then as that aligns more and more and more with what my answer would be then it's what do you need to ask me go that's exactly what i would do and even better even better a lot of times they'll hit me with a better answer than i would have had i'm like that's actually pretty good <laughs> let's do that um yeah. so uh, there's just a lot of nuance to leadership that i really took for granted um when i was you know in agency life or working um kind of as a really uh productive ic yeah man I, that's what we do we we do sports analogies here we pull them out of people um <laughs> to your like leader best player thing i'm i always think of like some like grizzled veteran like catcher who's like got bad knees and he's 38 years old just like way way past his prime but he's the leader of the team you got that like hot shot like 22 year old center fielder he's making diving plays he's hitting dingers like you know as often as anything when he's at the plate uh love that stuff man and that mind meld that's real i mean uh that you're talking about that john and i've been working together for so long now i've told him years back already that i'm like dude i've developed this inner john but i need to like consult you about something i just <laughs> ping it off of my inner john and he does a he does an okay john not, not replicating the original but it's it, it sometimes it it works for the purpose yeah it, it's interesting even how that scales though because it's like, it, i mean we could go down a rabbit hole here but I do want to switch gears a little bit and talk about triple whale um, and bringing this back to, you know, I think we B2B, B2C, it's, it's a good time. Um, and, and I think, you know, 
like, but let's talk about Triple Whale and what it does. And and probably part of the reason why you wanted to go from working with e-com brands to working with Triple Whale, right? Or or working in, like, make both the jump from e-com to SaaS and B2C to B2B uh, and, and take on this role of not really being an individual contributor anymore. Maybe you didn't actually know that that was going to happen. <laughs> like, I think that happens a lot. Like I, I used to work for this like chain of car dealerships. I was their marketing, their marketing and, and like sales manager or sales guys, their best sales guy would get promoted to sales manager and then he'd be horrible at it. And he'd horrible. Like, and, and, and you lost like, your best salesman. Yeah. And you just lost your best salesman <laughs> and he's all mad at all the other salesmen because they can't make deals like it. And anyway, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, and maybe you didn't know that was going to happen, but like you chose to do all these things. And I'm guessing I know your answer here. My inner Rava is saying that you did it because you like came across this product you really believe in. So let's talk about Triple Whale and like why it is so, you know, I, Triple Whale is a sponsor of the show, but like, you know, we're not trying to pitch here, but like, what is it about what this product does that you feel like solves a problem? Because what I think is that, and the, one of the biggest things I will say about the difference between uh, e-com and, and SaaS is that you can actually grow pretty big in e-com yes. without knowing a lot of things. 100%. Like there was a time where you could go grow pretty big in e-com without knowing what MER was. Hundred percent. People are probably watching the show like, okay, so what's MER? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> so like for real, like you could grow pretty big without knowing a lot of things because it was like, oh yeah, I have this, you know, these pair, this pair of glasses and I run ads on Facebook and, or Google or whatever. And I tell people why they are so great and people come buy them and I, I, it's profitable. And so then I just buy more glasses and sell more of them. Well, you know, and like, so, so to me, triple whale does a thing that like, <laughs> it is very timely where, like a lot of these founders get themselves in this situation where they're like, I have, I, I blinked and I have like a legitimate company now. And I don't know a lot of things I'm supposed to know or need to know in order to run an e-commerce company, in order to do demand planning, in order to do all of the things that you need to do to, to run a physical product business. So I'm putting words in your mouth a little bit here, but I'm guessing that the reason you jumped is because you saw this product and you're like, wow, this is what the people I work with all the time need and they don't know they need it. Yeah. So it's actually kind of a, a trident of reasons. So it's threefold. One, definitely the, the product had to be awesome. And so the platform was incredible um, to the founding team. So AJ, Max and Yvonne um, were incredible, really awesome. Um, and to be fair, we did a honeymoon period. So I, I came on for a couple months before I came on as full-time CMO. Um, but the third um, which is honestly more important than the first two. I love you, AJ Max. So maybe maybe equally as important, but um, is timing. And so iOS 14 really blew up a lot of stuff. And so I think really timing is almost one of the number one functions of a, or the success of a business um, is really dependent on the timing of that business. If you're early or late, it doesn't matter if you have a great product. It doesn't matter if the market's not ready it is what it is. And you're just going to, you know, languish there with this amazing product, almost there's like this beautiful billboard in the desert. Um, so it was kind of a combination of all three. And then quite frankly, like I'm 36. So I was, I was definitely getting older. And so wanting to like be able to step right into a, a C-suite role was really appealing to me. 
And I kind of want to touch on something that you said there earlier too. The the other thing that I'm realizing as I'm, I'm, I'm devouring like all this literature on business, on management, et cetera, et cetera. The more I'm realizing is there is a difference between an executive and a manager. And then a manager is more so like, uh, in a way, like a glorified PM. And I don't mean that like in a derogatory or a pejorative, it's just, they're more so keeping the trains on time, getting these things done where an executive, you're not only a PM, you're basically all your direct reports are essentially PMs. And then you're thinking of strategy and then you're thinking of politics. And then you're thinking of uh, to your point, kind of the power brokers, where should I be speaking? Who should I be talking to? Who should I be aligning with? Who should I not piss off? Who's it okay to piss off? Like, there's a lot of things that go on there versus a manager is basically, let's make sure my team is putting out the things on time at quality, at the velocity that my boss wants. Um, so I do think there's a little distinguished there, but that's pretty much why I made the jump. The founding team, the timing and the product was all really in alignment um, where like, quite frankly, I was making really good money and I had way more control over my schedule <laughs> than I do now. Cause I didn't have a boss. I mean, I had a boss, but the, you, you and my clients were my bosses and they're, you know, it was, it, it was just a little different where like AJ and Max called me at eight or nine o'clock at night. I pick up the phone, we talk and that, that's just a different um, shift where it's like before, you know, I, I worked when I wanted to work and I didn't work when I didn't want to work. And now not only that, like I have people that depend on me, like I have a team that I need to lead and I need to do this. And so, you know, there's a lot of pressure. And so that's, that's different for me where I used to be this kind of lone wolf ranger where I basically just seal team six and go in and crush it, you know, do the objective, get the money and get out where now it's like, there's, there's people's livelihoods on the line and stuff. So there, there's just, just an, an elevation in responsibility, but you know, it's, I, I was ready for that in my life, but it's definitely now it's a lot easier, but for a while it's basically a one man marketing department. Uh, so that's the weird thing about SaaS companies. Like before you find product market fit, the marketing department's kind of like the redheaded stepchild. Like every dollar goes towards engineering. Like every, can we hire better engineers? Can we hire more engineers? Marketing's like, yeah, put, do a blog post or something. You know what I mean? Like the resources are very svelte. And now that we have, you know, thankfully found a pretty strong product market fit. Um, we're about to close on a round. Like there, there's a lot of resources. My team's up to four people now. And uh, if you're awesome and in Austin, hit me up. Um, but so that has been helpful. And the thing I talk to when I talk to these other executives is it's just kind of the nature of the beast. Like there's just a transition period of it's going to be tough, you know, for three or four months because you, there's no point in building a marketing department for a product that nobody wants. And so there, there's just this inflection point where it's like, you kind of got to just bite down on the mouthpiece and get through a few of these, these months. And then when you do, there can be, you know, a lot of, uh, upside and it gets alleviated as you bring on a team. Like I said, I brought on a head of community, head of social, or bringing on a head of content. So there's a lot of these people that have been just absolutely just killers. Um, and it, it's been really a weight off my chest to have a lot of these kind of executional roles that are the, I'm kind of slicing them away from me. And now basically another way to put it is when I have meetings, my whole goal is to not have any action items. I'm basically like a delegator where it's like, okay, you get this, you get this, you get this, you get this. And that, 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 that's just totally different than before I'd go to meetings. It's like, okay, this is the action. I have this action. Okay, cool. Let's get this done. Let's get this done. Like that, that's not the, the, the world I live in anymore. And so th that transition has definitely been, um, not that it wasn't expected, but there's a saying like the map is not the territory. Like I knew, like I said, I read a lot of business books, a lot of business memoirs, like all these things. And like, I knew what was coming, but it's, it's not real till it's real. You know, yeah. Rob, I can't speak on the behalf of the people 
who's like, you know, who's living kind of has depended on you over the years. Uh, but you sound a lot when you're describing stuff like that about yourself, you'd sound like a lot like somebody I know pretty well uh, for a few years now. Uh, that's that's how I viewed John. And he's really been that like pressure absorber in a lot of ways. His his uh, initiative and ambition is just like off the charts. If you know, the more you get to know him, the more you'll just see like, oh, man, this none of this is a show. John's just John is the dude who thinks about just everything all the time. <laughs> he doesn't I, doesn't take doesn't sleep as far as I know. I've never seen him asleep. I don't think <laughs> so. Uh, it's, it's it's rumored. It's rumored that he sleeps, rumored. but you've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to to air that out there and let you know that's probably what your your employees think of you too. Um, you, sounds like you have enough ambition for a whole company. So, <laughs> well, thank you for yeah. that. So yeah. Now, okay. One of the reasons I will, and I have one more thing I want to kind of like hit on here, and then we'll we'll do what we call a parting shot. Uh, triple whale itself um and and i was kind of alluding to like product you know what i mean and, and like that's kind of what i think right like i figured you saw this and you're like this is this is valuable right and and, and econ people don't know they don't know they need this uh and this is, this is such a hard thing right when you when you service ecom businesses right like we do as an agency how often you come across founders that you're like you don't know what you don't know and i don't know if you're open to receiving it from me you know yes. uh so so in, like in that sense i could see like making that jump to triple whale being like what if they aren't willing to accept you know that they need some of these things but i i, I want to just maybe briefly touch on what triple whale is because we've talked about Good. it i don't know briefly touch on what triple whale is and then i want to maybe have your opinion your your opinion of, of ways or metrics or things that you look for in businesses that like a lot of ecom founders miss you know they don't know that they they don't know how important this is uh to them because I, I think there's like a lot of like i don't know not to get too nerdy but like a lot of kpis uh that maybe aren't maybe kpi is the wrong word for them maybe they're not a key performance indicator but a lot of pis a lot of performance indicators they get ignored that they don't even because they don't even know about it right like yes. i mean ltv is a huge one until 2021 we nobody's talking about ltv nobody's and that's like how how not right like i had somebody on a call the other day ask me what ltv was an ecom founder lifetime it, it, it's lifetime value right but i'm like how like that seems so important to me but it's because i've had so many reps on so many ecom yeah. brands and a lot of them have like i said before they got on this 10 million dollar 20 million dollar runway by being like here's some glasses here's some money on ads boom profitable right um and 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 that's not a bad thing that's a great thing but uh maybe yeah hit on what triple whale is really quick and and maybe hit on some things that you have found some things that a lot of brands are ignoring that you found to be very like valuable to look at yeah, definitely. So thank you for the tee up. So Triple Whale is uh, ultimately we're branding ourselves as the Ecom OS. So it's just a platform where you can uh, integrate all of your paid media um, and your business. So almost you can think of it as like a company brain and it's just this nexus that you're plugging things into. So we have your Snapchat, your Pinterest, your TikTok, um, Facebook, your Google ads. Um, we have reporting, we have customer insights. So we'll give you three AOVs, we'll give you cohorting, we'll give you 60, 90 day LTVs um customer journeys all these things to understand the customer's preference set preference value and then uh, our most used feature is the summary page where you can build your own customized dashboard based on any metrics you want you can blend those metrics um and then from that if you do have the economics we also offer an attribution 
um, play as well. Um, so we have triple whale and then triple whale plus pixel. And then ultimately you'll get with the pixel is um, those campaign ad and ad set level. Um, and so going back to the metrics that um, people care about, for me, after an analyzing all these things, I, I, we rolled up to kind of, we call it three ROAS, rule them all. But the first one is the MER ecosystem ROAS. So that's going to be your total sales over total ad spend. And so ultimately, I guess, to roll back up another layer. As a media buyer, you care about three things. You care about effectiveness, you care about efficiency, and you care about profits. And that's a word, the P word is something that you haven't heard in a while either because everybody's making so much money, right? Everybody's making so much money. Who cares when you're, your your gross profit there's is so be some high? Yeah, if there's a bunch on the top line. There's got to be some on the bottom line. Exactly, and that is something that you find. Or like when I started out, I haven't heard anybody talking about profits ever. It was always top line watching. Like what are, what revenues are we doing? What revenues are we doing? But you can lose all that at the operational level. And so you you just anyways. I'm kind of getting the weeds. But the three things I care about are uh, we call them three rows to roll them all. So it's that mer ecosystem ROAS. That's going to be the effectiveness of your ad spend. I care about new customer ROAS. So Shopify bifurcates their customers into new and returning. Uh, we just take the new customer revenue divided by total ad spend. That's gonna be kind of the canary in the coal mine. Are, are you sowing the seeds of your field to reap them in the future? Because if not, what's gonna happen is if you just watch Murr, you can basically just reactivate old customers. And to John's point, there's gonna be a ceiling on those people's LTV. Like there's only so much that customer is willing to give you. And if you just keep hammering those people, you're gonna get to a point where you're gonna wring a dry towel. So that's why the NC ROAS is really important. And then finally, profitability, like not every dollar is created equal. So we created this metric called POAS, profit on ad spend. It's ultimately the contribution margin, but CMOAS doesn't really roll off the tongue. So we chose POAS. But ultimately, this is going to be your gross profit divided by total ad spend. And what that metric is going to tell you is, are you putting the ad dollars behind the right products to drive profitability for the business? Like paid media is expensive, especially now. And so paid media should be used on high margin, best-selling products, not low margin products. Even if they are best sellers, use email, use other touch points that don't cost as much to sell those products. Not to say those are bad products, but again, we are using paid media. Paid media is expensive. Another way to think about it is if this campaign did succeed, would you be happy? Like if the answer is no, then why are you running that campaign? Like then switch out the product. And a lot of times that's not on the business owner, that's on the media buyer where the business owner is like sell everything where it's like, yeah, we can sell everything. But at the same time, there might be only one or two products in your you know, uh, product set that are actually conducive with the economics to succeed on paid media. Let's just push those. Like that's it. Those are the only products we're going to spend paid media on. And so again, you get into the... Uh, to John's point, the the uh, what is it? The teacher will appear when the student is ready. So there's definitely some some you know pushback that you'll get where it's like, well, this is our best selling product. We need to make revenue. Blah blah blah. You're like, okay, that's fine. But again, you're just you're you're selling into bad economics. And even if this did scale, you're going to lose money because you have not only that. This is gross profit. Now you're going to take uh, operational expenses. You're going to have shipping. Like, there's all these things that are going to come out of this. It, or it needs to scale it like a 4x you know that's not gonna not happen yeah exactly it's just not feasible and so the that's what i would say kind of why triple whale is so helpful is because you can kind of do all this stuff on a spreadsheet or on but what i found because i actually came from like a gds setup and or a google data studio setup and basically that's when i came over was uh, aj was courting me and we kind of were talking and i was like well if you can beat my setup now because i rolled my own and then he finally did and i was like huh all right this makes a lot of sense because one of the things as builders that you don't remember is that guess who supports the thing you built? 
you. And so if something breaks or something like that, it's a terrible, it's terrible. And so being able to just give somebody money and I get all the metrics that I care about in a really easy to digest manner. And then they're also pushing features out and doing all these things where it's like, I don't have to worry about that. That was kind of the big switch flip for me where it's like, at a certain point, you need to concentrate on the highest value activity. And it wasn't rolling my own data studio, figuring out why Supermetrics broke, like all these things like that. I was like, dude, I'll just give Triple Well money and it'll be fine. And I don't, I don't have to worry about anything. On top of that, there's a mobile app that I really slept on where um, I did almost all my media buying for analysis, et cetera, from um, my desktop. And having all that data in your mobile app and being able to just peek into your marketing ecosystem um, was actually a lot more compelling than I gave it credit for at the beginning. Nice. Okay. So one more segment on our show. We, we uh, just a little teaser here. We're probably going to come back with a part two for Raba because uh, this is such a good discussion, at least for me, you know, maybe other people are watching this and they're like, this is, they're out. They're not even here. Anymore. The wrap it up gift. Yeah, just, yeah. But, but I, I enjoyed this selfishly. The reason I do the podcast is so I can hear other people say smarter things than I know already and, and learn things. So uh, um. We're probably going to do a part two here where we play a little game with Rob with Raba. Um, a little maybe maybe a little Price is Right. I don't know. Who knows? Okay, if you know okay. if you watched our show before, you might know about Price is Right. Um, but one thing we do on our show here is we do a parting shot, and I'm going to ramble a little bit here to give you give you a second. Um, but the parting shot essentially is like, look, at, you know, based on the conversation we've had today, the thoughts it's triggered for you, um, the things that you know we've talked about. If you were to sort of like give somebody the too long didn't read for this whole episode, you know, of like, look, if you if you take one thing away today, if you've watched this whole thing and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I need to do that. I need to do this. Like, no, like if you just take one thing away and 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 really like make that a mindset, it doesn't have to be an action item, right? It could be an action item, it could be a mindset, it could be whatever. You know, what what is that? That's kind of the parting shot. And and we'll kick it to you as the guest to to sort of give us a parting shot on this episode. Yeah, I love that. You have so many cool segments. I'm so jealous now. And and to, to your other point, that's exactly why uh, we started the podcast, where I can uh, like non creepily invite way smarter people than me to have a conversation. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that. Um, I think the parting shot would be I'm going to cheat and actually do two. Um, one, it's understanding what the person's question is. And so I think everybody has a question. And so understanding what that stakeholder's question is, whether it is why aren't we making more money or whether it is why our product's not selling or what have you, there's always a question driving somebody and figuring out what that question is. And then the other thing I would say is, what is your goal? Like, what is your ultimate, like, is the thing you're doing driving you towards the thing you care about. And if you find those two things out, a lot of the decisions become way easier because you have a priority set to reference. Whereas if not, like for me, for example, like I'm a really big obliger. I have a really hard time saying no to people. And so I have to build systems around that because I know that and I'll just say yes to everything and I'll burn out. And so I, so that's what my parting shot would be. I would say if you're, um, and it, it's almost in a meta level, it's not even just business where it's like the people that you're interacting with and you care about, or that are stakeholders in your business agency, et cetera, understand what their question is. And then the second thing is, I guess in a weird way, it's understanding what your question is. Like, what are you trying to get done in this life and what matters to you? And if the actions that you're doing aren't driving you towards that, then you need to recalibrate and figure out why not. And then is it the goal that I'm going after that's wrong? Or is it the current environment and the activities that I'm performing that's not getting me there? 
love you to, to use what you say on your podcast all the time. I love that. <laughs> love that. <laughs> um, uh, no, that, that that's true. Like we've said before on our podcast, like if you're an entrepreneur, you got to build the business you want. You got to be sure about that. Right. Because like, if you go and do this thing where you do this, like bootstrap business and build yourself into it, whatever, like maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you are a hustler. Maybe you are an operator and it's like, hey, maybe you should be raising money and you should be like, that's what you should be doing. Or you should be building a big business or a bigger one than a lifestyle business. Right. Um, I, I, you know, the passive income thing that always gets sort of like, Hey, like you, you see this on your Facebook feed or your Instagram feed, like you can make money from the beach, right? Make that mailbox money. Uh, some people are not wired that way. I'm not wired that way. Like if I didn't have anything to do all day, oh God. I mean, look, I love my family, but like, I got to have like something I'm driving for, right? Like that's me. So like, you got to build the thing you want, right? Like you said, know what your goal is. I love what you said about like every, there's always a question driving everyone. I don't, I don't approach interactions that way. Right. And so I, I, I like that. Like I, you know, kind of approaching interactions, like what's, what's the question that's probably driving this person right now or within this interaction. It's awesome. Beautiful. Wow. Guys, thank you for joining me on this episode. Rob, it's been great meeting you. John is always a pleasure. Modern Commerce, thank you for joining us. If you've made it this far into the video, hopefully you enjoyed this uh, episode of our podcast. And if you did, please remember to like, comment, subscribe, hit that bell icon to get notifications about whenever we drop new videos in the future. And as always, until next time, we'll see you.